Today's sermon is going to be out of the book of Hebrews, and the book of Hebrews is all about the supremacy of Christ and how he is the fulfillment of all of God's promises, leading us to life and salvation. And this truth is provided throughout the whole book of Hebrews so that the original recipients of the letter, a congregation of Jewish Christians who, when you read it, they seem to be they were under some kind of intense persecution or pressure, the book is provided as this Christ-centered supremacy book so that they would stay the course, so they would remain faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ, that they wouldn't stray from him. Hear what the Lord says to them in their situation. He says, Recall the former days when after you were enlightened or saved, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward. It's Hebrews 10. So this this group, this congregation, they were suffering injustice. They were receiving public shame. Their property is being confiscated. They're getting arrested. They're going to prison. Uh, Things were not good, and we don't know how long... They were suffering like this. You know, we don't know how long, but it says, like, he tells them to look back over the course of their salvation. He goes, remember. So we, we don't know how long, but things were not good for them, and it didn't th- seem that things were getting better for this congregation. They were struggling and suffering so long that some of them were growing weak in the faith. They were losing perspective on their suffering and their hardship. And this is because seasons of hardship Persecution, trials, you know, whatever terms you want to use throughout the scriptures, long seasons of that have a unique way of breaking us. They do. Imagine if you're sick for years, chronic illness, it can break your spirit. And if you've been through that, you know what I'm talking about. The door is open to doubting God's faithfulness and doubting the promises of his salvation. And if you're in that state this morning, we're talking to you. But the same situation that was true for them is also true for the church today. And given the current wars that we're facing and the wars on the horizon, we have a rough economy which seems to be getting worse. There's a great amount of social disorder in our land. Uh, It feels like times are just beginning to get tough for the American church. No one's coming in to kill us right now, or I'm not saying not doom and gloom, but like, there's a lot of pressure right now. There's a lot of people hurting. They don't have hope. They don't know how God's going to take care of them. And they may not say it with their mouths, but maybe somewhere deep down, they're doubting God's goodness. That happens when we're under pressure. It's easy to get discouraged and lose perspective on why things are happening to us. But God in his grace was reminding them, just as he reminds us, to adjust their perspective on their sufferings. He's encouraging them because there's, he's reminding them that there's a good purpose for their sufferings. There's reasons for why they're going through what they're going through. These things are not random. These things are not just by accident that they're happening to them. You know, you're not just randomly getting arrested. You're not just randomly having your property confiscated, and that's the extreme. God's reminding them, like, there's purpose to this. Purpose to your sufferings, purpose to your trials. God's sovereign hand is over the storms of their lives, and that's true for us individually, 
of all time, and it's true for the church collectively as a whole. So this morning, let's hear what the Lord Jesus has to say to his people concerning our trials and our sufferings, their purpose, and let's find a word of encouragement. Amen? So if you can and are willing, please stand for the reading of the sacred scriptures. We're reading out of Hebrews chapter 12, beginning with the first verse through the 13th. Hear now the words of the living and true God. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Amen and amen. Consider him, Jesus, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your own blood. Talking about martyrdom. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? And here he quotes Proverbs chapter 3. My son... Do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the ones he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, We have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But he, God, disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Thanks be to him for his word. Let us pray. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, we just read the sacred scriptures out loud that point to you, that testify to you. And even specifically this morning, The scripture encourages us, keep your eyes fixed on you. So this morning, Lord, and even the children's sermon, the the spirit glorifies you. So I pray that you would draw us to absolute attention on who you are this morning, Jesus, and what you're working in our lives and your church as a whole and what you're doing in the world. Encourage us this morning in our trials and our sufferings and help us have a renewed perspective on why we face difficulties. We love you, Lord. We thank you. Glorify yourself in the preaching of the word. Speak to your people. And God's people said, amen. Amen. Please be seated. So we read in chapter 10, God's telling his people, he's saying, hold on, hold on. Don't let go of Jesus. Don't let go of your faith. Remember what you've been through. You know, when you first got saved, you suffered. You've been through that already. Hold on. In chapter 11, we're skipping over it, but chapter 11 of Hebrews is the famous Hall of Faith. He goes from that moment of exhortation to hold on, and then he gives them a whole chapter of Old Testament saints who've been through the ringer. 
He gives you know, through Abraham, through the prophets, and he's like, hey, those guys got sawn in two. Those people were cut into pieces. You know, that type of stuff, like the dramatic people of God that have been martyred. He reminds them of all that. And he goes, look, look at those saints of old. Be encouraged. And that's when we pick up on chapter 12. He goes, because we have that great cloud of witnesses in front of us that are in heaven right now who went through this already, take heart. And he quickly then moves on to the Jesus as the ultimate example of faith and endurance. And this is where our scripture reading really starts picking up. And this is where the connection begins to get made for us. And this question gets posed. He, he, basically, the, the, he basically puts it to the people, the recipients of this letter, as they think about their sufferings, he just said, be encouraged, hold on, look at all these martyrs that went before you, look at the saints of old, look to Jesus as the ultimate example. And then he asks this, this, this question, it's a rhetorical question, he goes, did you forget that you too are sons and daughters of the living God? Did you forget that? And the reason he's bringing that up is because, listen, if the Son of God faced hardship, if the Son of God faced endurance, if he faced the cross, if he faced the hostility of sinners, why would you expect that you're not going to also? The whole New Testament is replete with just descriptions that any person that is going to be a Christian will have to take up their cross and live the life like Jesus did. Not exactly, but that's the pattern, right? Jesus tells us so many times, if you're going to follow me, expect to be treated like me. Correct? And he's bringing them back to that moment, reminding them. And then he does the amazing. He tells us, though, the ultimate reason why. Not just that following Jesus will lead us into troubles and hardship. He gives us the ultimate reason why. Why the ultimate reason Christians face trials and temptations. And it's this. It's because it's God's gracious discipline to us. The ultimate reason why you as a Christian and us collectively as a church face problems in life is because it's God's gracious discipline towards us. And what you need to know right off the bat, wherever you're at in life, whether you're encouraged or discouraged right now, what you need to know is this about God's good discipline, is that it's good. I know that sounds trivial. I know that sounds like repeating myself, but God's discipline is good. It's good, and that's what he's encouraging them on. And that's really hard for us, because when you're suffering, it don't feel good. Right? It don't feel good. Nobody likes to suffer. But he's telling us here, it's for your good, for our good, for the health of the body of Christ. And if we had to define God's discipline, God's good discipline, I think we could best understand it like this, is that when our Heavenly Father uses trials, sufferings, and persecutions of all varieties to make us more like his Son, God's good discipline is when he uses the pains, sufferings, and trials of life to make us like his son. And that is good. And that is spread across the entire scripture. The Apostle James says something very similar. Different words, but same idea. James 1. The Apostle says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness or endurance. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Same idea, different words. Suffering and trials produce wisdom and perfection in us. It changes us. The Apostle Paul tells us, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, he says, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, or ignorant. I don't want you to be ignorant, brothers, of the affliction we experience in Asia. And if you all remember Paul's story, 
He lived it. That dude hurt a lot, a lot, a lot. He, remember his litany of like, I was beaten, I was shipwrecked, I've been robbed, I've been naked, I've been in the cold. Like he goes on and on and on sometimes of his sufferings because he's reminding them this is what it means to follow Christ. And he's like, I don't want you to forget that. And he goes, hear what he says. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. The apostle is saying that this Christian life I'm doing, this apostleship I'm doing is so hard, I didn't want to even live anymore. It was so bad. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. So the apostle himself is telling us it was so bad, I didn't want to live anymore, but God pressed me so hard to teach me to not trust in me, but to trust in him. And that's the point of your sufferings and your trials and all the things. You know, it's said in different ways, but that's the end goal, right? God's good discipline is when he afflicts us or allows affliction, however you want to think about that, to get you to be more like Christ and trust him more. And Christ lived only to do his Father's will. And that's God's end design and end goal for every Christian that ever has and ever will be, and for us collectively as a church. But we also want to talk about what God's good discipline is not. And this is important. And this is important because the trials and hardships you face as an individual Christian, or us collectively as a church, are not because God hates you. God is not trying to destroy you if you are a Christian. God does not hate you. And as, a, as pastoral like counseling, I've been with enough people that where, when they're in the depths of their hurts and their pains, I've heard enough people tell me that they think that God hates them. Like, what's, going, what's, what's happening in my life is because God hates me. He must be just so angry with me. And I'm like, I don't think you understand your heavenly father if that's what you think. Let's turn back to Jesus. It's not true. God does not hate his church. Jesus does not hate his body. He does not despise his bride. Jesus loves his church and every Christian that makes it up. So if something's in your mind, if you're suffering and you're, you're, the devil has a good way of doing this to poke the heart and say, see, God hates you. He's forsaken you. He does not love you. If those are the thoughts in your head, Crush them with the truth. God does not hate his children. God does not hate his children. You are not facing his wrath because God's wrath and God's hatred of sin are a matter of justice against the ungodly. But for those who have embraced the gospel of Christ, you have passed on from being enemies of the living God, children of wrath, as Paul tells us, to becoming the children of the Almighty. And you have peace with God, Romans 5 tells us. Peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. You are no longer subject to punishment because Christ bore our sins in his flesh on the cross, the gospel. If you are a Christian, the things you're going through are not judgment. They're not God's hatred towards you. Please know this. Otherwise, you have a wrong perspective on why you're going through what you're going through and it won't produce what it's supposed to produce. And there are so many verses, guys, throughout the New Testament that tells us of God's love for his people. Hear one of them. Colossians 1, 21 tells us, you, you Christians, 
who were once alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds, God has now reconciled or made peace with him in the body of Christ by his death in order to present you holy, blameless, without reproach. Let those words sink in. Because of the gospel, the death and resurrection of our Lord, God takes you, the hostile sinner who hates him, turns you into his friend, his children, his bride, his people, and says you're now holy. The fact that God would say sinful people are holy is insane. He says, you're blameless. And you're like, I still sin. It's like, yeah, but God says you're blameless before him. And he says you're above reproach, meaning no charge can come against you from the devil. That's amazing. That's how God sees you individually as a Christian. He does not hate you if you are in his son. His wrath is not against you. Lay that to heart. Because otherwise your trials just snowball into worse. And they won't produce the peaceable fruits of righteousness. Now this does not mean that God does not get angry at our sins. You know, I've read many commentaries on this question. Like, does God ever get angry at his people still? It's like, I believe so. You can't tell me you read the Psalms and not see God's distaste for our sin. I think he still gets angry, but it's never a place of wrath and judgment. Not like that. And that's a, that's a big difference. Because ungodly people, those outside of Christ, do face wrath and judgment, but not Christians. The trials you are coming from, that are coming to you, come from a place of fatherly love not wrath. It's a huge difference. And verse 7 in our scripture tells us this morning that God, he says, he's, God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate, illegitimate children and not sons. So the very fact that you're facing hardship as a Christian is a token of that you are accepted by the father through Jesus. Because everybody suffers to a degree in life, right? Even lost people have hard lives. But there's a unique difference when we're Christians that our suffering then is no longer just a place of God's anger against unrighteousness. It's that these things now are to make us holy. And there's a great difference in that. We could spend many days and weeks meditating and thinking about that, but that's the short answer. God does not hate you. He's disciplining you because you are his sons and daughters and you will live with him and reign with him forever. Amen? And so he then goes on to use this earthly illustration to further this point about the trials we face are good and they're disciplined. They're not anger and wrath. And he uses this earthly illustration, arguing the lesser to the greater by using our own dads as an example. We've all had, well, let me say all, fatherlessness is an epidemic in our country, but to a degree we understand what he's trying to get at, right? We've all had parents to discipline us and they were not perfect, but they tried their best. I assume in good conscience that our parents tried their best to instill some virtue in us. I think that's true. And they're not perfect, but we understand that. How much more then is he arguing that your heavenly father, who really is perfect, knows you so perfectly that he knows how to perfectly change you to be more like his son? That's the point he's making. God will do what he must do to get us to fall out of love with the world and to fall more in love with him. And he knows what you need to do that. He knows how to do that for you and to you. And that's why God's good discipline, it'll take many forms. 
And this is important to grasp because as someone as, who's raising children, uh, and if you have, you know what I'm talking about, you understand that discipline is not always because your child is doing something wrong. Meaning God's good discipline does not always come from a place of because you're sinning. And what I mean is this. Let's say you just see a character defect in your child that needs adjusting. You know, let's say they, are, um, they exaggerate a lot or something like that, and you'll remind them on it. You, you know, it's not always from a place of sin. So again, if you're going through trials in life as a Christian, it's not always because of sin either. There could just be something in your heart that God is working out. It's usually because of sin, but it's not always so. And what also is true is that God's discipline on your life is not random. It's not arbitrary. It's not just because God sits back one day and says, you know what I feel like doing today? I feel like crushing somebody. I feel like hurting one of my kids. Like, that's, that's not how God operates, right? That's that wrong thinking. God's discipline, the trials that we face in life to make us more like Christ, is specific. It has purpose. And it has a good result. You know, it almost kind of reminds me of the times I've taken, when we've done our, taken our kids to the doctors. You ever had to hold down your kids when they're getting shots? It's the worst. I hate that. There's no joy in that, seeing your kids scream. But they got to take their medicine, right? They need it. And so you do it, even though you hate it, because you know what they need, right? You're their parent. It's good for them. They need this. Likewise, when God works on us, it might not always be from that place of sin, but there's some discipline you need in your life that God is going to be working on and when it does, it's not fun, but you need it, and he's going to do it. Because like my child, she will never ask the nurse saying, please give me shots, right? She will not say, oh, nurse practitioner, I'm so happy you're coming to give me painful shots, six of them, and both my legs. And I feel for those kids, right? That doesn't happen. Likewise, which one of you are going to choose suffering willingly to be more like Christ? Almost nobody, right? We don't do that. It's not in our flesh to do that. So God, being the good dad that he is, knows that you need your shots and he will discipline you because you need it, because we don't choose it for ourselves. And this is demonstrated really well through the book of Job. If you've read the book of Job, you know what I'm talking about. He goes through it all. And then what makes it worse is he gets all of his friends and they surround him and they reduced his suffering to simply, Job, you just must be sinning. That's why this is happening to you. God's wrath is against you. You're sinning. This, you just need to repent, Job. And it goes on chapter after chapter of them saying the same thing and Job saying the same thing back. That's not true. And then at the end of the story, God is very displeased with his friends because they reduced God's cosmic sovereign hand into a simple thumbs up, thumbs down, pass and fail system. And you see, Job, you just failed. That's not true. It's not true. And so they have a come to meeting, come to Jesus meeting with Job's friend about that. But the point is, don't jump to conclusions about your sufferings or the trials of others. You know, we don't know always why, why we go through what we go through, but there's, there is always purpose. The end result is always the purpose to be made like Christ. So again, it's not because you're sinning all the time or it's not from a place of wrath. Sometimes God's discipline will just come because you just need it. And another factor to consider about God's good discipline is the really obvious. 
it hurts. It hurts. He tells us in verse 11 to 13, he says, For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. God's discipline is to be restorative, healing. It's supposed to bring more life to you, make you better, make you whole, if the proper perspective is kept. And again, this seems super obvious on it being painful, but here's a good point of application. Please tell God when you're hurting. It's okay to get on your knees and tell God that this is the worst thing that's ever happened to you and you hate it. It's okay to tell your father in heaven, I hate getting shots. I don't want to get shots. Metaphorically speaking, we're not actually talking about literal shots, right? It's okay to tell him that. It's okay to scream at God in the car and bang on the steering wheel and be like, I would never have done this. Why did you do this? Why did you let this happen? And that's a good place to be. It frees our heart. And when we talk about the Psalms in a little bit, that's how the Psalms portray crying out to God, telling him, you don't like it. It's not fair. It's hurts. It's not fun. Why is this happening to me? All those huge questions. Talk to God that way as the Psalter does. And we're going to talk about that a little bit. But acknowledge the pain. Don't hesitate in crying to God. But this is also where we start seeing the exhortation to have our perspectives realigned with God's perspective on your sufferings. And this is the big deal because, like I said, with those, those guys that wrote got this letter Hebrews, they were suffering so long they were beginning to wander. They were beginning to stray from the faith. And he's encouraging them to stay because if we don't keep proper perspective, if our compass is not pointing north looking at Jesus, your sufferings just become, well, God hates me. A soul gets bitter against their creator. Why did you do this? Why do you hate me, God? And then they shake their fist at him and curse him back. They forsake their true love. And that's not God's desire or his purpose for trials. So be encouraged today. We have to have the right mindset to our trials to be trained by them, as he says. Let these things train you. Let these things build endurance in you. Because if not, we're not really going to get healed of our spiritual maladies. We'll just continue not being like Christ. So how do we do this? How are we to be trained by the pain and suffering and hurt in life in order to be made more holy? What are some actual things we can do? So we're going to have about seven applications. Um, These are what I was thinking, but if you think of different ways how to receive God's discipline, share them with us sometime. How have you embraced the hurts of life to be more like Christ? That's the ultimate question. So first one I thought, first and foremost, is one, how do you endure, how do you embrace the discipline of God? One, keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. That's what he tells us in the beginning of the passage. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus as the ultimate example. Because this king, he has command and destiny over your life, Christian. Jesus is our God king, and he knows, right? He's, he's the head of the church. He's the shepherd of the sheep. It says he's our uh, great high priest. He's the apostle of the church. All these different expressions are used to talk about our Jesus. So you really should take it up with the highest form of management 
and keep your eyes fixed on him, this Jesus paid the ultimate. He knows what you think and feel. He knows what hurt feels like. He knows what it's like to be betrayed. He knows what it's like to not have enough. You know, all that stuff he knows, which is why he can sympathize with you. It says he sympathizes with our weaknesses. He knows what you're feeling. You know, that's how my head think of the story of Lazarus, right? God in the flesh wept at the death of one of his friends. And again, we could go into a deep theology about how can God being all-knowing and yet God, like, how does that work? How can he be sad about things that he knows or causes or whatever, right? But let the scripture speak plainly. He wept at the death of his friend. He knows what you think and feel in your sufferings. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus, the anchor of our hope. Two, uh, understand that what you're going through could be worse. That's never a great thing to tell someone, but that's what the scripture just told us. He says, in your struggle against sin, keeping faithful to Christ, he says, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood, meaning martyrdom. So it's that moment of a healthy check and perspective on my suffering could be infinitely worse. Someone could actually be trying to kill me. Uh, We don't want to be petty, assuming that all the bad things that happen to us are this huge form of discipline. So for instance, if you get cranky that someone took your seat at church, or if you're upset someone's in your parking spot, or you couldn't find a place to park, or you lost your coupons or your phone or whatever, it's like, that could be God's discipline. I I hesitate to say that. I think that could be you just being petty and frustrated. And maybe that's how God is disciplining you to be self-aware that you're petty and to not be upset of those little things. I don't know. But the point is, as he said, you have not resisted to the point of shedding your own blood. Your sufferings could be worse. And praise God, nobody's here this morning to cut our heads off. Amen. Like there are Christians right now across the planet who are meeting in secret because if they're found, they are going to be killed. No one is doing to that to us here. So our sufferings, you know, we never want to compare ourselves to another, but remember, it can be worse. Praise God, it is not. Let's move on. Three, be self-aware through prayer. Be self-aware through prayer. When trials are happening, train yourself to ask God the hard introspective question. That should be like the first thing you do when crazy comes into your life. Slam on the brakes. Train yourself to ask this question. God, what do you want me to learn? What are you trying to do? And that's really hard because our instinct is pain, defense, try to get out of the problem. That, that's, that's fine. But on some level, you need to slam the brakes when you're going through the stuff and ask God, like, why? What do you want me to learn? Father, I can trust you. I know that you have good plans for me. I know that you are disciplining me. You're letting this happen because nothing happens to Christians without the Almighty letting it happen. I hope you believe that. You got to ask yourself, all right, God, in prayer, in those quiet places, when you can get alone, say, God, what do you want me to learn? What is it in my heart that you're trying to do? What idols do I need to let go of? What bad patterns in my life do you need to fix? Where are you trying to grow my faith and stretch me? Those types of questions. And be ready to receive when the Spirit talks to you. Because he will. God does not discipline us blindly. And what I mean is like like a good father, you want them to know where you're trying to grow them, right? God will communicate to you somehow what it is you're going through. I fully believe this. He will treat you and teach you to be aware of what he's working on. Maybe not right then at that moment, but sometime in your life, you're going to be able to look at stuff and be like, okay, 
I understand something maybe. I believe that. Feel free to challenge me on that. But I don't think we just suffer. We know we suffer to be more like Christ. That's what I try to say, right? And therefore, we can say, what part of my life needs to be cut out? I believe that. Number four, lean on the church. You are not alone in your hurt. You're not alone in your pain. You're not alone in your trials. God designed this thing called the church to be a body that supports one another. You are not alone as a Christian. Not only do you have the Holy Spirit guiding and protecting and leading you, he's given you the fullness of his body. There are hands in this church that'll hold you. There's a heart in this church to love you. There are people here that will surround you. Lean on your church family. God put you in a unique community because you're not supposed to do life alone. And like the scripture says, when one of us hurts, all of us hurt. When one of us cries, all of us cries. When one of us rejoices, all of us rejoice. Lean on the church body. Invite them into your trials and pain. Invite them in. Don't do it alone. Number five, spend more time in the Psalms. If there's anything I would encourage this morning, if you can remember, spend more time in the Psalms. It's a whole book that is filled with major themes of joy, pain, and prayer. A lot of the older Christian denominations have a 60-day cycle of going through the Psalms, and it's been like that for generations. I would encourage you, if you don't read the Psalms regularly, please do so. And in fact, if anyone ever tells me, like, Adam, I don't know how to pray, which I've heard that a lot, I say, then you should read the Psalms. You will learn how to pray if you read the Psalms. And we know the Psalms are ultimately speaking of Christ. It is his story in the Psalms. Learn how to pray like that. Learn, see how these guys call out to God and you start calling out to God like that. You talk to God like that. The Psalms are an excellent training place. And Because hear what I read this morning. I printed this this morning. This is David. He says, O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. For your arrows have sunk into me, and your hand has come down on me. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation or your anger. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities have gone over my head, and like a heavy burden, they are too heavy for me. David, whatever he was going through, he was some kind of sickness. You read the rest of Psalm 38. He's in some kind of sickness, and he's describing like his ailments and how sick he is. And he goes, God, this is because of my sin, and you, you did this to me. And now he's crying out for mercy. Things to think about. If David had that perspective, we should. I'm not saying every sickness is, you know, God crushing us or something like that. But that's what that psalm says, right? It teaches us how to pray through our sicknesses and our diseases. Number six. Six application, we got two more. Six, repent. Whatever it is you're in, if you know that there's a sin in your life that God's targeting, repent of it. Don't be stiff-necked. That's one of those regular phrases in the scripture. Don't be stiff-necked. When God is disciplining you, turn. And he's using like a description like for donkeys and horses. I know nothing about horses or donkeys, but that's the illustration he uses. Don't be like the rebellious animal, like my cat. I have a cat that's the worst. This cat always jumps on the counter. And we have the vinegar bottle and we spray her. This cat does not learn. Like she would rather get bathed in vinegar and still keep jumping on the counter. I don't understand that. She's a stiff-necked cat. Maybe it's just a cat thing, but whatever, right? So don't be like my cat. Stop jumping on the proverbial counter. Do what you're supposed to do, right? So likewise, if you know there's a sin in your life and God is like tapping the heart saying, 
We need to, we need to think about this. Don't be stiff-necked. Don't be like a cat. And lastly, after you've gone through your trial, after you've come through the storm, after you've had your restoration moments where God strengthened you and you've kept good perspective on your trials, understand that he grew you so you could serve others also. He made you more like Christ so you in the church can serve others through their trials too. I'm sure, and I know we have in some of our testimony time, if we run around this room, there are people who have been through a lot. You are, again, not being alone. It's the same idea, right? When you've come over that finish line and the race starts again someday, understand you grew so God can use you to minister to other people. So if you, sometimes, like I said, it's not always because you did anything wrong. Sometimes it's for other people's sake. Maybe a trial's happening to you because God is training you in this area. So then later on, someone that you meet in church life or in the world or whatever needs to know what you went through and lean on your strength. God uses people to minister to one another. So understand that. Be active in your church life. Be ready to help when people are calling upon you. You're not alone, and you're called to serve the body also. So those are my seven points. Think through these things as your trials. Remember, these things are not random. These things are not to destroy you. They are God's good plan to build you, to strengthen you, to be more like his son. But you need to keep a proper perspective. Otherwise, the heart will get bitter. God is the bad guy in the sky destroying your life. And then you'll just drift away. And I bet if we ask people in this church, you probably know someone who walked away from the faith because the Christian life got too hard. I'm sure of it. My marriage wasn't what I thought it would be. Uh, someone died in my family or I lost my job and God hates me. Like, whatever, right? I, I've heard it all. And I know you guys have heard or felt that way too. We gotta keep good perspective. These things are to build us, to change us, to serve and love God more, to be more like his son. And maybe now as we come to the altar time, maybe there you are going through a trial and now is your opportunity, whether you come to your seat or come down, maybe that's the moment where you need to practice what we just preached and maybe start asking God those hard questions of the whys. What are you working on? And maybe you know someone who is going through something. Maybe you can pray for them during this time. But I also want to encourage this. We talked about it already, but the last thing. What we're talking about today is for Christian people. Trials to build up, trials to make us more like Christ. If you are not Christian or you're grossly backslidden and you're not walking with Jesus, you gotta ask yourself, have you really entered life? Maybe you are facing God's judgments, but he's giving you the opportunity now to receive his son, to be a part of the family of God, to be a part of this thing called the church and the kingdom. Because outside of this, outside of Christ, there is no life. There's just death and destruction. And that's not God's will for you. He does not want you to destroy yourself with your sin. Will you embrace the forgiveness that Jesus offers you through his cross, through his resurrection? Will you cry to him today? If you know somebody who's lost, pray for them during this time. But let's do some business with the Lord and then we'll have our benediction and dismiss. Amen? Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, Thank you for who you are. Thank you that you are the ultimate example 
of endurance and suffering. And we know that our Heavenly Father is making us like you. That's the end goal for all Christian people, is to be formed to the image of the Son, to take on his image, the true image of God. Meet with us now. This is our altar time, Lord. You know it. You planned it. Speak to everybody here individually what they need to hear. We trust in that, Lord. We trust in your good timing. Meet with us now. In Christ's name we pray.